Good morning again. Please turn to the book of First Peter. I'll be reading First Peter chapter one, verses fourteen through sixteen. First Peter one, fourteen through sixteen. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As we celebrate Christmas week, Lord, may we understand that this was a holy event, a holy night, and that is very much related to our very everyday practical decisions to be holy from the inside out through our conduct. Help us see the beauty and the glory of your holiness this morning, which is our only hope through Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> the word of the Lord to us this morning is clear. Be holy in how you act because God is holy. Jesus was born in that stable for the purpose of creating in sinners new desires. New desires to pursue holiness. The angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And because of this, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. We have seen in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter over these last two months 
the salvation that this child grew up and purchased, accomplished. And now this morning, the text of Scripture looks straight at every one of us who profess to believe in Him and the news about this Jesus and says to us, you be holy in your conduct because He is holy. Now briefly, let's just notice the words on the page in front of us. Notice that the main point in verses 14 to 16 of 1 Peter 1 is verse 15. It's the command, be holy in your conduct. And then Peter pits that or contrasts that against what he says in verse 14. Where he says, do not follow after the passions or the desires of your former ignorance. So in other words, the structure is very simple. Here's the word of the Lord. Not this, professing Christian, not this, but this. And then he grounds it in a quotation from the book of Leviticus, where God said, be holy because I am holy. And so the key to what it means for us to walk out of here today and say, be holy, but what does that mean? How do I do that? How do I start? The key is to compare verses 14 with verse 15. In other words, pursuing holy conduct in verse 15 is the opposite of being led by former lusts or passions, or desires in verse 14. That's the text. But first, before we come back to that text, I, I want to go right to the foundation and not assume anything. And that is to ask this big question. Because the text has this as its foundation. God is holy. What does that mean? What does holy or holiness mean? First, the word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew text, is kadash, from the root kad, which means to cut, to, to cut, to, to separate. Come over into the New Testament, which is written in Greek, and the verb is hagiazo, or the adjective, hagias. When you hear Holy Spirit, it's always hagias, pneuma, Holy Spirit. But it means, the basic meaning of the word is, is this cutting or separating, setting apart from what is evil, from what is tainted, positively, Unto 
God. For instance, God sets apart the seventh day for the Jews, and He says, that Sabbath is holy. What do you mean it's holy? It means it's separated from the other six days. The other six days, you're doing your business, your work, your crops. and Here, you stop doing that, and you're doing something very different. This day is holy, meaning it's separated from the others. Or the priests are called holy. Why? Because their work is different from all the other worldly work. They're separated out from the people to work in the sacrificial system in the temple. They are Holy separate. Or even things. A, a lampstand in the tabernacle could be called holy because its purpose is unto God in His temple work. And God is constantly called throughout Scripture the Holy One of Israel. His basic meaning. Now, our text says God is is holy. So what does that mean? Just, I think it, it first means he's utterly separate. He's utterly separated from everything else. He's separated from all imperfections. He is utterly separated from sin and defilement. And it means he's separated not only from, but he's separated unto God. He is absolutely God-centered. That's the essence of biblical holiness. So let's take 10, 12 minutes and stop and slowly think about what does that mean? What we're doing here, I mean, we can have a 10-week series on the attributes of God. Big theological word. And we talk about what is it that makes God God? And if you take one of these things away, He is not the God of the Bible. He has incommunicable attributes, and He has communicable attributes. Help me. Okay. He has attributes that cannot be communicated to the creature, meaning He has attributes that are part and parcel of what it is to be God that no one else could possibly ever have. They cannot be communicated. Like His eternality, He is eternal without beginning. No creature could ever have that. He is omniscient, all-knowing. There is no possibility of any knowledge, past, present, or future that God does not in God always know. He is omnipotent, all power to do whatever He so chooses to do. These are His attributes. They are incommunicable, but He has communicable attributes, other attributes that are part of who God is that the creature could also partake of and experience, like love God is. Love, like righteousness, like justice, 
and like holiness. But first, before we think about, because we're called to it, He says, you be holy as I am holy. But what do you mean, God, that you are holy? I'm going to start real foundationally. What I'm going to say, I take to be a self-evident fact in just thinking about the question. What what do I mean by self-evident fact? In other words, to think otherwise of what I'm going to say to me is just absolutely absurd. It would be like trying to contemplate a round square. It's absurd. And so, here's a statement. For God to be God He must be infinitely, unboundedly happy, complete, content in His very nature. He has to be. Think otherwise is just utterly absurd. Why? Because God is God. Okay, what do you mean? The attributes. He is omniscient. He has no lack of knowledge or wisdom. There's nothing about His foreseeing in future or past or present in any way that would say, Darn it! Only if I would have known, I would have turned right instead of left. In other words, so all of his knowledge and all of his wisdom is there at his dispense. And he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, which means he has all the power and ability to do whatever he wants. And to think that God, who has all the ability and power to do, to act, to be, whatever His wisdom would dictate to be, to think that He would be less than infinitely happy is absurd. Now, I don't know what else to do. If you can't see that, just keep thinking about it. But it's like saying a square circle It's absurd for God to be who He is and to exist is less than perfectly happy. Meaning there's no other step to take where He could be a little bit more fulfilled. It's absurd. Okay? Are you tracking? Next step. What is it about God that must be true for Him to be infinitely, omnipotently, omnisciently happy, contented, and fulfilled? Well, I postulate that He must always have been by nature the one who views and 
has delighted in that which is of supreme delight. I mean, to, to think, just with me, just that there is such a thing or such an object that exists that is the supreme value, beauty, goodness, delightfulness, and, it, and it's there. Okay. To think that the eternal God could be infinitely happy by ignoring that beauty and that delight without Him taking His energy, His omnipotence and His knowledge and to fully focus it on that which is most delightful to a being to think he can be infinitely happy without doing that just doesn't make any sense. So, God to be complete, absolutely needless, meaning within himself, is totally fulfilled. He must delight in that which is most delightful, which happens to be Himself. God Himself. For God to look to something else other than that which is supremely valuable is called idolatry or sinfulness. If He were to go outside of Himself to find His real, true fulfillment and happiness, is the essence of sin. See, not only for us, but for God, all persons. The essence of worship is what a person looks to to bring them fulfillment, their happiness. That's the thing. Whether it's the alcohol for an alcoholic, the drug for a drug addict, Human contact and relationship, or I won't be fulfilled. Illicit sex. Just fill it in. Whatever one looks to, to bring them their satisfaction, that's the thing that's supreme to me, is what at that moment they worship. For God to delight in, and I'll just throw the word in, to worship anything other than the one true God is the essence of sin. And so, as long as God has been God, He in His omniscience has been conscious of Himself. Not like you and me. We're finite. And you do it. You probably talk to yourself in the shower. And it's embarrassing if someone ever hears you from the hallway. But you have conversations. You are conscious of your existence. Finitely. But the non-finite one, God, has always been so perfectly conscious of His existence, His value, His beauty, that He has adored the perfections of His nature so undistortedly that the 
Father as the subject has viewed the exact beauty of his representation as his own object standing forth. Is the second person of the Holy Trinity. The Father is perfectly contented in the beauty and the delight and the worship of God in the Son. The Son, without beginning, has always been He who has enjoyed and delighted in and been absolutely satisfied with the perfections of God the Father in that dynamic of love which by definition meets every need has been so powerful and omnipotent and omniscient that that very community of love between the Father and the Son is personified in the person of the Holy Spirit of the Godhead. The holiness of God means that He is first and foremost for Himself. He must be. The core of sin is to delight in anything less than God. That is the essence of the attribute of God's holiness. Totally other. Totally separated unto Himself. And as our text says, this attribute can be communicated to the creature. He creates mankind in his own image. Why? Well, he, he didn't create us like a farmer raises chickens in order to fulfill a need the farmer has. That would be horrendous. He created in order not to get something He doesn't have. But He created in order to overflow and to extend outward what He does have, or more appropriately, what He is. His essence, His holiness, reflected back unto Him through the creature made in His image. So Adam and Eve... Delight yourself in me. Anything else is called sin. You read Genesis 1. And the way God lays it out there, it's exactly what sin is. Can't trust Him. He's out for Himself. He's treating you like a chicken in His farm. He doesn't want you to be like Him. Instead of realizing that the most loving thing God could possibly do for Adam 
and Eve and you is to give you the most delightful object for all eternity to enjoy, which is himself. And therefore, for God to command us, his creatures, to love him, enjoy him, obey him, is at the essence of God's love toward us creatures. See, to help clarify this just real briefly then, because there's, there's, there's some connected terms in the Bible. I just want to briefly give some nuances of the, of the term holiness, the term glory, and the term righteousness. So God's holiness is the reality that He in His very nature, it's an attribute, is utterly unique and unto Himself. And there is no other. He is transcendent. He is underived. He is the essence of pure, absolute truth, beauty, justice, love, period. There is no other. Glory is that word which most often refers to the radiance of or the outward expression of His essence or holiness. As the heat or the light from the sun, it's not, it is not the sun, it is the beams, it's the glory, the radiance of the sun. So when the Bible speaks of God creating everything for His glory, He means for everything to receive the beams and the light and reflect back in the heart of human beings the beauty and the delightfulness that He is. And righteousness, the righteousness of God means He always acts in line with what is right. And He is the definition or the essence, final standard of what is right. It is His faithfulness. It's His commitment to always act in accord with His glory or His holiness. If God were to ever act in any ultimate way as if, as if He were not infinitely valuable, as if His glory were anything but eternal and the standard of perfection, and rightness, if he ever moved in any way as if that were not true, everything would implode. It's the essence of sin. That would be the essence of unrighteousness because he would be failing to delight in what is supremely delightful, which is himself. Just very briefly, this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 3. See, Paul sees a problem that most of us human beings, we just don't see it because we're so not God-centered. 
so radically self-centered. Paul sees that God did not destroy everybody for their sin. And it's a problem. He sees in the Old Testament that David sins against God's holiness and His glory. And God acted as if it were not a big deal. And he says, David, your sins are put away. Paul realized, if God just swept David's sin, or yours, under the rug, eh, just let bygones be bygones. It's not that important that you offended the holiness of God, the glory of God, the value of my being. Not that important. Let's get on with it. You can do better. Paul says, you don't understand God. And he says, that's why the cross. He says, God put Christ forward as a wrath-bearing substitute. And one of the reasons is because God appeared to look unrighteous. But he's proving he wasn't because he only put away Abel's or David's, or your sin because of Jesus Christ demonstrating the value and the worth of God's glory. That the only way God could ever receive, savingly removed from His holy wrath, would be for God Himself to be born on Christmas Day. To live perfect righteousness as a human and to bear the just punishment that God's holy love for His glory demands. And it doesn't get any more pointed than his glory. It took Jesus. Wow. He really does uphold His glory in justifying sinners. That's what Paul ends with there in chapter 3 of Romans. So that He, God, would be just. And at the same time, the justifier of sinners who don't deserve it. So, let's just keep that now in the hopper. Your head. Let's go back to our text and watch what Peter does. Peter tells us, Be holy as God is holy. So, now, what does that mean? In other words, how is any understanding of God's holiness, how is that to impact our life in any practical way? Does the command mean, okay, we're supposed to wake up tomorrow and we're supposed to try to seek to be as utterly unique and as glorious as God is glorious? No way. It's not what he's saying. But it means as God is holy, totally, 
God-centered, totally sent apart for the exaltation of His own glory. So we are to follow Him in that and to be God-centered and to exalt His glory. To find Him as the object of our delight. For God as Creator, as God, for God to be infinitely and unboundedly self-centered in His glory is the essence of righteousness. For anybody else, for any creature to be self-centered is the essence of of sin. For the creature to be God-centered as God is God-centered is the essence of righteousness. This is the core of holiness. And now look in the text. Peter gets more explicit about how this is to work itself out in our lives. Verses 14 to 15 is the key as we look at them and you compare what he does in 14 to what he does in verse 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Oh, this is so key to what he's telling us. There were passions... It's the Greek word epithumia. Some of you know that's the word that's often used in the New Testament for the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. Who here knows what it's like to have desires? You ever get hungry, really tired, really want to scream at your spouse? You know what it is to have passions and drives. Now here he says, don't live after these drives of your former ignorance. Now what? Verse 15. But, what? As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Most of us have probably just missed what he said. That's because that's what we do. And you didn't get the opportunity to spend hours over this text this week. He just said, as God is holy, be holy. That's what he said, right? Look at it. As he, who's the he? God is holy. But Yes, that is what he's saying. He's referring to God. But he chose to refer to Him in a particular way. But as He who called you. That is not a throwaway line here. He didn't have to be complex about God. He chose to be. Make his point. So we see it saying, verse 14 is the opposite 
of holiness, following the passions of your former ignorance. And it begins with passions. That's his point in verse 14. Verse 15, as God who called you. So stop there. What Peter is doing, he's saying, this is what I talked about in verse 3. God called you. Well, he said it differently there. God caused you to be born again. That's what he said in verse 3. And we saw clearly in the context, Peter means God came along and He implanted new desires in your heart. That's where the hope comes from. Born again unto a living hope. He says, look at it in verse 8. Though you don't see Him, you... This is not merely external acting. It's internal. You love Him. How? How? Don't miss the first 20 minutes of the sermon. There's only one way. And that is by God Himself who perfectly and by His nature has loved Himself in the Son and the Son and the Father personified in the Spirit, the only way any of us could ever come to even taste a morsel of what it is to actually savingly love God is if God's love for God was placed in you by the person of the Spirit. And that's what happens at new birth. Or when He calls you. That's what He means. Remember Romans 8. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he what? He called. He called in such a way you could not, not come. Why? Because he didn't just call you through Billy Graham. Or me. Or your friend. Or reading the Gideon's Bible in a hotel room. He called you by uninvited coming into your heart by the person of the Holy Spirit and you found yourself a believer. He changed your desires. That call is the beginning of our experience of holiness. The root of of holiness in conduct is a changed heart. A heart that by the Holy Spirit now tastes and sees that He is good. And because God is called, and as the text says, now you're children of God, made us children of God. Now get, the, get, get what Peter's doing here. Got this? Follow me. Now... You no longer see things in ignorance. That's what he means. By the passions, the desires of your former ignorance. The Holy Spirit came and he birthed new desires. We still 
have experienced and dwell within us those former desires. The difference is, you're different. They're former in a way they were not former before He called you. Verse 14 again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires or passions of your former lack of knowledge, ignorance. Don't conform to your former desires as you did when you were ignorant. What do you mean? I think this is what he's saying. As you did before you came to experience God. Before you came to the knowledge of God. By His calling you. Remember what he's going to say at the beginning of chapter 2? Since you have tasted the goodness of God. There's a time when you didn't. If you are a Christian right now, then this has happened to you. That's who he's addressing at this point in the letter. I want you to turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians and listen to this dynamic the way the Apostle Paul now says this. Chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, starting with verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, meaning people hear it, family members preach it to them, they're deacons in churches for 50 years, but they don't ever really see the truth. In a saving way. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Can get the mind, knowledge, they can't see or know in a way. That they're desperate to see or know. is blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory. See it? Of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Can't see it. But watch what he says about believers in verse 6. For God who said... Light shall shine out of darkness. We're talking about creation. Okay? He created light out of darkness. He's the same one who created something in a Christian. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face. Of Jesus Christ. He's talking about new birth. He's talking about being effectually called by Him. And you're changed. Same gospel you might have heard, grown up in church with all your life, and then you were saved. 
because God turned the light on whoop, and created you in Christ Jesus. And so now Peter's saying to pattern our life, this is you, to pattern your life after the former passions, desires of your flesh. Instead of pattering your, pattering, patter, is that right? Instead, instead of making your life after the pattern of the new desires, is like what C.S. Lewis wrote in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when all the while infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That's what Paul just wrote in 2 Corinthians. They're blinded and they're in ignorance. Hey, would you like to enjoy the Creator as your enjoyment forever? No, that was every one of you in me. And it might be some of you right now, I don't know. Verse 6, but God shone and you said, yes. Yes, we once were blind, now we see. We once, Peter is saying, were not Christians. Now we are. Let me give a crude illustration. Picture some psychological test where, and we wouldn't do this because it would be cruel, but picture constructing a 20 by 20 foot big metal box and we get a human baby boy and we place that baby in the box and we have ways to feed the baby and to grow up, but we on purpose make the box on the inside dull gray. Everything. No color. That human grows up. Feed. Survives. Feed. Grows. Feed. 25 years, never seen anything but gray. And then when he's 25, they start to insert with the food finger paintings that little three-year-olds did. It's not Picasso or Rembrandt, but it's finger paintings with all kinds of colors. And that 25-year-old young man is blown away. And the next day, food comes and says, Please, you got any more finger colors? Finger paintings. Are there more colors than these greens and these reds? I've never seen such a thing. And I mean, his passions for them. They're strong. For the next two years, they periodically give him more and more three-year-old's finger paintings. And then after two years, the gospel comes. Well, 
Let me not jump there yet. They say to him, with that lunch they're given that day, here's some more finger paintings, or maybe instead of that, you would like to see for yourself, with your own eyes, the Grand Canyon? His response, no! Give me more finger paintings. He cannot imagine what it is to have an offer at the holiday at the sea or to stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon. He doesn't know it. He hasn't experienced it. No one has taken it and placed that experience in his heart. Okay, so they decide to cart the box with him in it all the way to the north rim of the Grand Canyon and right up against the edge. And without asking him, they get a saw and they saw out a massive hole. Take that piece of wood out. And he looks at the Grand Canyon. He's changed forever. The finger paintings are now former desires in his ignorance. He'll never be the same. They say, would you like to step out of the box and walk down into the canyon in view? Yes! I can't get enough. The replacing of the former ignorance. Those desires which come from it that Peter is talking about. How did you, what's it replaced with? It's replaced because of this new knowing God savingly. That's the means of resisting and putting away the former desires. And it leads to, as Peter says, obedient children. The next day, he reads in the book they hand him. And it says to him in different ways every day, come outside the box. Step into the canyon. Peter says it this way. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of of your former ignorance. But he who, he who called you is holy. You also be holy in how you live. In your conduct. The fact that Peter gives to them and to us and to himself such a command means... And it implies he knows himself and you that we still have cravings for finger paintings of disobedience. But it also implies this dynamic of what the Christian life is. And that is that the decisive blow that regeneration, new birth, Holy Spirit indwelling, 
savingly through Christ, has produced in us is that it has, in a sense, done away with the former dominating force of sinful desires. And so, his phrase, as obedient children, that makes sense because new desires have been implanted in us. And the reason they have been implanted in us is where we started this morning. Because the child who was implanted into Mary's womb was the essence and personification of holiness. Actions, decisions we all will make over the next seven days always begin with desires. How we feed desires will dictate which desires at any given moment are the strongest. That's why you will find yourself to resist a sinful temptation and to walk in holiness. And it is why you will find yourself caving to the greater desire to sin. We are desperate, as we saw last week in the first command. Hope fully by feeding your minds and your hearts with truth which grows the greater desire to view the Grand Canyon of God and to obey stepping out of the box. So as we sing now, O Holy Night, as we sing this song now and this week and all these Christmas songs of this great holy occasion. Let us do it with all of our might as obedient children pursuing true joy in Him expressed overflowing in our conduct. O holy Jesus, O sweet Jesus, may may this prayer be the prayer of everyone here. May no one be veiled, but be able to say, sweet, good-tasting Jesus, glorify your holiness in the affections of us here the rest of our time this morning as we sing in your holy glorious name Amen